0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Churfus. One of the biggest problems in global diets is that billions of people aren't getting enough micronutrients. These are things like vitamins, vitamin A is the biggest problem, and minerals like iron, zinc and iodine. One solution is fortification, adding the missing micronutrient to food. The classic example of that is iodine in salt, which has been an amazing success, but there are others like milk fortified with vitamin D and flour with added folic acid. More recently, in the past 20 years or so, another approach has come into the limelight, biofortification. Instead of adding the micronutrients to foods, biofortification aims to add them to the crops we turn into food. Now, sometimes you can do that by increasing the amount in the soil or spraying it onto leaves, but the vast majority of biofortified crops are the result of genetic changes. One you may have heard of is so-called golden rice, designed to correct vitamin A deficiency. That was genetically engineered to include genes from a daffodil and a bacterium to persuade the rice to make the yellow-orange pigments that we turn into vitamin A. But most of the 420 or so bio-fortified varieties that have been released in the past 20 years have been produced by conventional breeding, selecting plants with higher levels of micronutrients. So we've got orange-fleshed sweet potatoes for vitamin A deficiency. We've got high iron beans, wheat, and rice to fight anemia. We've got high zinc, wheat, and rice, etc., etc. And biofortification seems to be where most of the research energy into micronutrient deficiency is going. But the journal Global Food Security recently published a paper that says, quote, biofortification has not delivered on its promises. And it goes on to state, and it may never be able to do so. That paper is by Martin Van Ginkel, a plant breeder, and me. So I thought I'd ask myself about it. Now, we gave it a deliberately provocative title, What is Wrong with Biofortification? No question mark. So that seems like a good place to start. What is wrong with biofortification? Well, we focus on four things, really. One is about the yield. Um, There seems to be a yield penalty. That is, you don't get as much total crop from a biofortified food as you do get from a non-biofortified variety. Another worry is genetic uniformity. a third is about their suitability for the very poor subsistence farmers who are probably the ones who most need more micronutrients in their diet. And and finally, there's, there's almost no evidence that it actually works, that it actually improves the health and, and well-being of the people who eat biofortified foods, in fact. It's, it's really strange. To, it's really difficult to find evidence that it works. All right, let's start then with, with yield. I mean, surely breeders take that into account. Yeah, you'd think so, and, and yes and no. Um, there are a couple of things, though. Uh, one is the sort of the th- a theoretical limit to how much the plant can put into the part that we eat. And and there's some good evidence that the more micronutrients go in, the lower the yield. Or to put it another way, with a higher yield, you actually get less of whatever it is you're looking for. So rice, for example, if you get a higher yield, um, you get less zinc in each grain of rice. And and the same is true for beta-carotene and yield in cassava, in maize, and in sweet potato. The more is in the crop, the lower the total yield. So, a, a biofortified crop is likely to be lower in macronutrients, in the, in the calories that, that you really need from them. But more to the point, when breeders say they, that their biofortified variety is, provides a good yield quite often they're checking against out-of-date varieties that are not even being grown much anymore. Hang on a minute. What, what, do, you, what do you mean by that? Well, um, when you want to release a new commercial variety, in many, many countries, uh, you have to prove its value. You have to show that it's better than existing, current, Popular varieties. And my colleague, Martin van Ginkel, who is a breeder, he looked through loads of examples of this. Uh, For example, he looked at wheat. So you've got high zinc and high iron biofortified varieties of wheat now. And the yield of those is 82% for zinc and 72% for iron of the Czech variety which was released over a decade ago in in 2011. Okay, so if you make a normal assumption that breeding progress in yield is somewhere between half a percent and 1% a year, then over the course of about 10 years, the best wheat could be 5 to 10% better than the Czech variety. So rather than 80% and 70%, Those varieties are really only yielding 70% or 60% of the highest yielding modern varieties. Now, that's hardly a high yielding variety. And you get similar results for rice, where the um, biofortified varieties are 20 to 30% lower than the best varieties. Um, Orange fleshed sweet potato is even worse, with only around half the yield of the variety that they check against. And that variety was released back in 1989. So how, who knows how much better the the modern varieties of unbiofortified sweet potato really are. But the real concern, I mean, you know, this is sort of number crunching and nitpicking, but the real concern is that farmers who say, oh yeah, okay, I'll adopt a biofortified variety, they may not appreciate that their yields overall will drop and so (laughs) now in addition to a micronutrient deficiency you possibly have a macronutrient deficiency where they just don't have enough food. Okay so you've made a pretty good case against biofortification but what are the alternatives? Well I mean I think it's absolutely true that biofortification can increase the quality of the food, there's no doubt about that. That you can raise the levels of micronutrients. Maybe not as much as they claim. Maybe it's not as sustainable as that. But you can do that. But it it does reduce the quantity of food. If, on the other hand, breeding staple crops for yield, um, I mean, these are the crops that supply supply us with most of the energy we need. If you focus on breeding staple crops for yield that means supplying the energy we need will we'll need less land and that land you could then use to grow fruit and vegetables um, which, if, if you can get people to eat them um, could supply even better nutrition than the one to however many micronutrients you you manage to bio, get into the crops by biofortification. So, yeah, I mean, breeding is great. Um, We need to increase the yield of staples. So let's do that. Let's focus on increasing the yield of staples and looking to other foods to supply the missing micronutrients. Okay, yeah, but surely, I mean, surely scientists can overcome all the technical objections. Well, maybe they can, but they haven't so far. And there are Other problems I mentioned genetic uniformity. Um, When you look at conventional breeding, it's it's a a, time-consuming and it's a game of numbers. The more offspring you look at, the better the chances of finding the kind of changes that you're looking for. And there's a there's an approach. It's not that new anymore, called marker-assisted selection. Um, a really important breeding advance because it allows you to screen rapidly many many more offspring because what you do is you look at the you look at the DNA of the offspring and you can do it you know for a seedling that's just a couple of days old and you say okay has this got the gene that I'm looking for that will increase whatever it is you're looking to increase um, and that. As I say, that's great. It speeds things up enormously. But it it tends to make breeders focus on just a few genes that they know will increase the amount of micronutrients. And so you've got lots and lots of what look like different varieties offering, say, high-iron beans or 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 high zinc wheat or high iron wheat. They look different, but actually they only have a few specific genes for whatever the micronutrient is. And and that kind of uniformity makes varieties susceptible to pests and diseases. Um, I mean, the classic example of this is southern corn blight. Breeders discovered a, um, a variant called cytoplasmic male sterility, which is very useful when you're breeding two different parental lines of maize, um, corn, to make hybrids, um, because it means that you don't have to employ teenage kids to go through the rows, removing the male um, anthers uh, from one of your parents so that you don't get cross-fertilization. Anyway, um, CMS, cytoplasmic male sterility, resulted in all the varieties being susceptible to this disease called southern corn blight. And as a result, in in America in the early 70s, corn farmers, maize farmers, lost half of their harvest in some places. Um, Okay, you know, we don't know that focusing on a few. um, a few genes for for high micronutrient levels um, will will have a bad impact, but but is it is it worth the risk, given all the other problems that biofortification has? I, I don't think so. Yeah, I take your point, but surely farmers can protect themselves with modern pesticides and fungicides. Yeah, sure they can if they're wealthy. And, and that's a really important point. Who are these biofortified varieties for? I mean, who, who do they benefit? Um, most of them, probably, require commercial production. So will the farmers who really need these, who could grow them for themselves, will they be able to afford the seed? Um, will, they be able to buy this? will they be able to buy biofortified varieties in the market? Um, And then there's another question, which is, will they they be able to save their own seed? Smallholder farmers are very dependent on saving their own seed. And if you take a trait like beta-carotene, precursors for vitamin A, that's visible. I mean, you know, it's orange, yellow, or it isn't. Um, And if it's a darker color, then it's probably got more of it. But things like iron and zinc, which are also very important... um, you can't see whether a bean or a, or a rice grain or a, or a wheat seed, you can't see whether that's got high zinc or high iron. Um, and so maybe farmers thinking that they're saving these more, more nutritious varieties won't actually be doing that. And, and you know, there's, um, there's another problem, which is if I go to buy high-nutrition varieties in the market, I can't tell there whether I'm getting what I'm supposed to be getting. So there's, there's opportunity for fraud. And we already know that a lot of, a lot of the food trade is susceptible to fraud of, of one sort or another. Well, all right then, clever clogs. What's the answer? Well, I mean, dietary diversity. Um, we, we, we know it can work um the more different foods you can eat the much more likely you are to be well nourished to get all the micronutrients and macronutrients that you need but there are i mean i, I freely admit there are problems with dietary diversity I mean, we know we know it ought to be able to work but <laughs> um a bit like biofortification um There hasn't been much measurement of the actual effects of dietary diversity. It's just assumed to be axiomatically that, that, you know, a diverse diet is going to be good for you. Um, But we, you know, we, we, we don't really know that. I mean, we know it, we know that dietary diversity protects against a lot of the diseases so-called diseases of civilization, things like obesity and cardiovascular problems and diabetes and things like that. But most of those studies have been done in in the rich world, where there's probably probably not such a um, not such a great amount of micronutrient deficiency. Um, so, so we don't know how much it'll it'll work in. In poor countries, but I, I mean a priori, I, I would I would expect it to. I really would. Um, but then, uh, the other the other kind of problem with dietary diversity is, is is that because food is such an important part of culture, and because it has so many different social values, dietary diversity has this problem that throws some researchers into a spin, which is that it doesn't scale. In other words, you can't take something that works for poorer households in Rwanda and assume that if you take the same procedures to a poor family in Bangladesh or uh, Peru or uh, wherever, that it'll work. So, I mean, a lot of this big programs are kind of based on the idea that well, if we buy a fortify or something, um, we can get people to eat it wherever they are, because I mean you know, any rice-eating culture is going to eat high iron rice um, with with dietary diversity it takes, it takes real work OK, it takes real work. Why hasn't that work been done? I, I don't, I really don't know I mean, you'd think it would be important um, My suspicion is that biofortification is is really just very attractive as what looks like a simple solution to a very difficult and and complex problem. I mean, we know in our paper, we we kind of go through as much as we can, how, how much money has been spent on biofortification, and it's at least $500 million over the past 20 years or so. And that's almost certainly an underestimate. And agricultural research, especially for developing countries, for for poorer farmers and for for poverty, it gets little enough money as it is. So it's quite probable, in our view, that the money that went to biofortification probably prevented money going to the kinds of studies that would really prove that bio, that a, a, a A more diverse diet would have definite beneficial effects. And again, as I said before, um, what works in one culture to promote dietary diversity wouldn't necessarily work in another, so you then need to do the studies in every different culture. Um, But there's a kind of a circular problem here because the people who dole out the money want evidence that things work. And without funding, it's hard to get the evidence. Now, I've said that biofortification hasn't actually produced much evidence that it works. But the thing is, it's shiny, it's modern, it's a very simple um, thing to understand, we put more in the food. Of course it's going to be good for people. It catches the attention, and I think it captures the funding in the same way. Micronutrient deficiency clearly is something we really ought to be able to tackle. But are you hopeful for the future? Maybe a little. I mean, funding for one of the main biofortification programs has been dropping. There does seem to be some recognition that the claims that have been made for biofortification might not stand up to tough scrutiny. Um, The question is whether funding for alternatives like dietary diversity is rising, whether more effort is being put into that, and I, I don't think it is. The thing is that good nutrition is a really, really difficult problem because of um, the cultural role of food and how that differs from from one society to another. And because, um, especially for micronutrients, um, they're invisible. um, And you don't feel the effects, you don't see the effects for a long time. And that's why micronutrient deficiency is often called hidden hunger, because you can have perfectly adequate amounts of of carbohydrates and fats and proteins and still suffer from micronutrient deficiency. But it's absolutely essential that we solve it. People I, I guess we need to educate people in in developed countries just as much as in developing countries that they should be consuming a diverse diet. And all of the campaigns today have have singularly failed to do that. And five a day and food pyramids and all that. They just don't work. We don't know what does work. We don't know what does work in any society really. I'm 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 impressed by things like um the the charity that B. Wilson set up in the UK called um Taste Ed to educate small children about food, about diet. I mean there are similar programs in Scandinavia, in France, and I've But the whole question of, well, how do you help people to choose a more nutritious diet is one that um, I think we really, people really need to work harder at. And I don't think biofortification even begins to be an answer to that problem. Me, telling myself that there are probably no easy solutions to the problems of micronutrient deficiencies. I'll put a link to our paper in the show notes at eatthispodcast.com and I look forward to your comments. We've already had a bit of encouragement from other researchers. One of the things I didn't have time to tell myself without getting deep into the weeds is that micronutrient deficiency is a huge drain on countries' resources. People who suffer from hidden hunger, especially as children, are less productive in many ways, and the effects last throughout adulthood. And there are also huge health implications, which cost money to treat. Right now, there seems to be a lack of joined-up thinking in governments around the world. But it's my gut feeling that if only they would invest in dietary diversity now, They would save money and boost economic development in the long run. And that, of course, is the real problem, thinking about the long run. My thanks to everybody who supports the show with a donation. You can join them at eatthispodcast.com slash supporters. And if you enjoyed it, please consider leaving a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, because that helps to attract new listeners. For now, though, from me, Jeremy Churfus, and this episode's guest, Jeremy Churfus, goodbye, and thanks for listening.